Good morning, everybody. Come on, it's a bright spring day. We've got our nice sunny, it's 80. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. All right, that's better. Uh, so we've been in Romans, started in Romans 1, and we are up to Romans 10, verses 11 through 13. And uh, over this whole banner of Romans, it's been uh, kind of overarching theme. It's been for the love of God. Today's title specifically is Salvation is Open to All Who Believe. Amen? So I want to read the text and then pray, and then uh, we'll get into this text, which is very, very encouraging. It kind of reminds me of, of where we are. I love this time of year. Uh, this is probably like mid-April to the end of July. It's my favorite time of year because it's warmer. Uh, it starts to get light around 6 in the morning, so you get the long days. And you get days like today that are going to be beautiful, it's sunny. And so this text is like that. It offers a lot of hope to us. And so it fits where we are. So let me read it, and then uh, we'll pray. Um, I'm going to start with verse 9, and then kind of get a running start into the passage. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead... You will be saved. For with one, for with the heart, one believes and is justified, and with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Jesus, we come to you right now. I thank you for your word. I thank you for the encouraging parts. I thank you for the hard parts that rub against us sometimes, that create friction against our sinful selves as we seek to try to understand your ways and your glory. I thank you for passages like this that remind us that there are those that we can tell about the gospel and they will believe and that it is not... Um, it is not by our works, Lord, but it's by the work that you have done. So I pray right now that we'd be free of distraction. I pray you would help me to be free of any desire to want to glorify myself or anything but you. I just pray you would be with us in this time and that you would bless it, that we would leave here feeling encouraged, that we leave here feeling edified. I pray, Lord, that you would help us just to be able to pray together, bury, bury each other's burdens together, rejoice together. I do pray that we would be a people of prayer and we would be a people desiring your kingdom as it's so tempting to spend time thinking about all the things in our lives and what we need to do and how we want things to be better. I confess that I'm guilty of that. I pray right now, Lord, that we would be, we would be thankful and that we would be full of hope and joy. And I pray that we would come before you, Lord, and that we would see more of your glory just as Moses desired. In your name, amen. I think it's easy as I was preparing for this passage to take verses like this. They can sound very familiar, even if they're very hope-filled. They can sound very familiar, and it can be totally lost on us. It, it can just be like, oh yeah, I know that. And you can just kind of glaze over it and move forward. Um, but this passage has some really amazing things to say. It has some beauty in it, and I hope that we see that. And I hope that our hearts are stirred up and awakened to that. And as I was thinking about this, this is really kind of how we are uh, as sinful people living under the curse. 
It's easy for us to take things that we're used to, things that are miracles, and just become used to them. I'll give you an example. So I don't fly very often, but I have actually flown uh, three times in the last three months. And for billing, I'll fly again this month uh, to the West Coast with my brother, which we haven't uh, flown together in a long time. In fact, the last time I remember flying with him, uh, he had just seen the movie Alive. You haven't seen that movie? It's an older movie about a plane that goes down in Alaska. And people can't get to them, and they run out of food, and they have this moral decision on are they going to eat the people that are already dead to stay alive. And they end up eating the people. And so he looks at me stone serious. We're flying from Texas to Florida. He looks at me stone serious and says, hey, if the plane goes down and I die, you can eat me. I'm okay with it. And I looked at him and I was like, are you crazy? We're flying from Texas to Florida. I think they're going to find us if we go down. And the only thing that's going to eat you are probably the mosquitoes in Alabama. So anyway, I don't know why he watched it right before he flew. So hopefully our, this next flight will go better than that. But it's easy to be really put out with flying. And we complain about all kinds of things when you fly. And when you fly, there are a lot of inconveniences. You know, you have to get there an hour or two before the plane takes off. Uh, you have to coordinate a ride. You either have somebody drop you off, or you got to park somewhere, and you got to walk a long way to get there. Uh, you can only pack specific items if you don't want to be arrested and detained by the FBI. You have to make sure that you don't get the wrong things in your suitcase. You have to go through security, which means you have to take all your shoes off. You have to take all your electronics out. If you're lucky enough, like I often am, to get randomly searched, then somebody will pat down your legs and arms and other more personal areas. And you go through all this, and then you go in to an airport where, you know, we complain about the restaurants that are in there and the food or the coffee of the Starbucks in the airport's not as good as a normal Starbucks. We complain about all these things that we don't have any control over, right? You don't control when the plane takes off or if it's delayed. And you get crammed into this row with two other people, and you're going to have this awkward conflict over who's going to get the armrest, this nonverbal confrontation. And then if you need to use the bathroom, you have to go to this little miniature bathroom that feels like it's coated in smallpox. And you come out feeling like you need to be, you know, thoroughly scrubbed down and bleached. We go through all this and we complain about it. If the flight's delayed like 30 minutes, we're like, this is ridiculous. I'm going to be late getting to where I'm going. But I did some research, and it's a miracle that we're able to fly. And I think we forget that until December 17, 1903, no human had ever flown anything anywhere. And when you think about it, it's pretty amazing. A, a Lovett 737 jet weighs 175,000 pounds. 175,000 pounds. And one engine on a 737 can generate 30,000 horsepower. For those of you who glaze over and don't know anything about motors, like a, real, a pretty good sports car is 400 horsepower. 30,000 horsepower in one engine on these planes. And I didn't know this, but a 737 costs between 90 and 135 million dollars. Like, I don't know about you, I've never seen a 90 million dollar anything in my life except for the miniature bathroom plane coated in smallpox. That's the only thing I've seen. I've never been to anybody's house that's worth 100 million dollars. And the, just the tires that go on a plane can weigh 250 pounds and cost more than $5,000 for one tire on these things. 
And they fly between 460 to 575 miles an hour, which means you can go about 1,000 miles in two hours. To give you some perspective, before like modern travel, we have railroads and cars and planes and trucks and all that. If you wanted to go from Iowa to California, that took six months. You can make that flight in about four hours now. And so these, these planes are modern marvels. You can get 175,000 pounds up in the air, 36,000 feet, seven miles above the air, going 500 miles an hour. And so, you know, before all of this, you had to really do a lot of work. I just finished reading the uh, novel, Lonesome Dove, and because I'm from Texas, and I don't know, I felt like it was part of my duty as a Texan to read it. So anyway, I just finished reading it, and they went on a cattle drive from South Texas to Montana. It took six months. They had to take a wagon loaded with provisions. Like three people died just from crossing rivers or getting ambushed. That's the other thing about flying a plane uh, versus horse and buggy travel. You don't have to worry about getting robbed or killed or ambushed by outlaws for the most part. Um, so, you know, it used to be very different when you wanted to go somewhere. I don't have to load a wagon. I don't have to make plans. I don't have to put my life or my job on hold for months or years at a time. I can go on my phone, make a few taps, and then I can get step on a $100 million plane, and in five hours and 40 minutes, I can be from Raleigh stepping off that plane in LA. That's not even a full fourth of my day to travel the whole continental United States. But yet, I sit in the terminal and I'm like, I cannot believe this flight is delayed. My time is valuable. What are they doing? Because it's lost on us, the miracle of being able to fly wherever we want, pretty much any time that you want to, we take it for granted. Because all the way up until basically 60 or 70 years ago, no one could ever do that. But it's totally lost on us now. We even complain about the snacks that they hand out. Because we're just, you know, that's just how we are. And I think it'd be very tempting when we come to a passage like this to forget the miracle of salvation being open to everyone who believes. That's a big deal. And most religions, that's not what they teach because they're not, it's not the truth of God. It's a man-made creation. So I want to jump in. We're going to see several themes kind of coming out from this passage. So let's jump in on uh, verse 11. I'll read it. For Scripture says that everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Now, where is Paul getting that? Where is the scripture? Well, two places. One, just go up to 9.33. What does it say? The very last part of that. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Does that sound familiar? Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. So these are both quoting from Isaiah 28.16. And Paul's very careful here. In 9, he says, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. But he's very careful to drive the point home here. He puts in, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Now, if you've lived on the earth long enough, you may think, it doesn't sound right to me. I've witnessed people being put to shame. I've been put to shame. I've seen injustice. So how can Paul say this? Paul is a man who's very familiar with the scriptures. He knew what the Psalms said. He knew what the prophets said. He knew the law. So he was familiar with Psalms like Psalm 13, 1 through 2. 
It talks about the groanings of life. How long, O Lord, will you forget me? Forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all day long? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? How can Paul say, we'll never be put to shame when, when there's, he knows passages like this. What about Psalm 38, 7 through 10? For my sides are filled with burning, and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and crushed. I groan. Why do you groan? Because of the tumult of my heart. Oh, Lord, all my longing is before you. My sign is not hidden from you. My heart throbs. My strength fails me. The light of my eyes has gone out for me. That's a song of hopelessness. Psalm 53, 1 through 3. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, abominable, doing abominable iniquity. There is no one who does good. God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. No one does good, not even one. In a world like this, how can Paul say we'll never be put to shame? Is he delusional? Is he totally out of touch? Has he become so comfortable and bathed in luxury that he's forgotten that there's shame in this world? Paul's not out of touch. He's talking and he's pointing to here the end, judgment, eternity. Thomas Schreiner says of this verse in his commentary, the phrase not be put to shame is pointing to final judgment. Those who hope in Christ will be saved and vindicated when it matters most. Paul's not saying that we won't experience hard times on this earth. We know we will. If you've lived any period of time, you've seen it, you've felt it yourself. You've felt people attack you. You've felt the shame of your own sin. Even if you know much about church history, we see it. That we sang today in our, in, in our first song about people being martyred. There are whole books that have been written about people's lives who were martyred. People who were killed for no other reason than their belief in Jesus. We still see it today. There are a lot of countries in the world today where the uh, message of the gospel is offensive and the people in the government are against it. Even with their own fellowship. Two families, two families that are members of our churches in the last few years were forced to leave their home countries because the government did not want them there preaching the gospel. Many believers in different countries today are attacked. Their, their church buildings are targets of attack. They can be targets of being arrested, being persecuted, and being killed. In culture, even in Western culture, you can be a target of attack for beliefs in Christ. So Paul's not saying we're not going to have heartache or shame in this world, but he's saying all of it is what Jesus said. In this world, you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. That's Paul's message. We have these light and, and momentary trials, but in the end, we will not be shamed. The God who created us 
is going to take us and he's going to bring us into his eternal family and we're going to enjoy feasting and celebrating with him forever without the stain of sin. So that's what Paul is saying in verse 11. Everyone who believes in him will not be put to sin. Salvation is open to all. And then he goes down, he goes on and he doubles down in verse 12. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing riches on all who call on his name. There's really two parts to this verse. We're going to deal with them together. We're going to start with the first part. It says, Forever, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all. So he's saying, look, there are no earthly qualifiers to be a part of God's family. You don't have to be married. You don't have to be single. You don't have to have kids. You don't have to be a certain income. You don't have to be affluent. You don't have to be poor. There's no high school or college requirement. There's not even any preschool requirement. You don't have to, there, there's no qualifiers. There's not a certain ethnicity, certain gender. Uh, you don't have to be American. You don't have to be African. You don't have to be Chinese. There's no, salvation is open to all. In that time, there were Jews and there were Greek. There were uh, Greeks. That's kind of how they thought about the world. So he's saying, in, in another passage, we'll see in just a second, he says, there are Jews and there are Gentiles. And so he's saying, salvation is open to all. And this is really a connection back to Romans 3, when he basically says, look, all are sinners. And he's going to come here and say, all can be saved by belief in God. So in Romans 3, he says, for there is no distinction, no distinction, for all have sinned. For the Jews have sinned, yes. For the Gentiles have sinned, yes. For old people have sinned, young people have sinned, yes. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Paul asks the question. Is he not the God of Gentiles also? That's another question, just to make sure you know. Yes, of the Gentiles also. So Paul is saying salvation is open to all, regardless of ethnicity or status. All are sinners deserving God's wrath. All are under the curse of sin when we're born. And salvation is open to all through who believe in him. Now this is a very radical message at that time. It's a very radical message in our time, but I'll explain why it's radical now in verse 13. In that time, it was very radical because the Jews wanted to be part of God's inner circle. And they didn't want the Gentiles to have the same status that they had. And this comes up over and over again in the New Testament, in the early church. Ron Shore did a great job in his sermon talking about the, how, how the Jews wanted to be prideful about their position and they wanted kind of a special place. In fact, Peter even fell into this. Listen to what Paul says right now between him and Peter in Galatians. Galatians 2, 11 through 16. This is what Paul says. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. Okay, there's some tension. All right, Paul's being very clear. He usually is. He's not saying they were kind of giving each other the silent treatment. I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Why do you stand condemned? For certain men, for before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. Salvation's open to all. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. What does that mean? There was a group of people who wanted to say, yes, salvation is through Jesus, and be circumcised. Fearing the circumcision party. 
And the rest of the Jews acted, so is that right? No. The rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. In order, that, in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So Paul is saying, quit with the legalism. Stop it. Why does he have to do that? Because we love it. It's stupid, but we love it. It's just in us. It's who we are. We want to add on to the gospel. So we see this, you know, all throughout church history. And really, every religion that's not from God, it's all based on legalism. If you think about it, even atheists. So let's start. I'll just go over some of four or five of the more common ones. Mormons. Mormons are working hard to be good people. They go to temple, which they beside some holy significance to without any support from God's word. They believe that they've got to have a family because the most the enjoyable part of heaven will be being in a place where you can enjoy yourself with your family. So it's a religion that displaces God from the center of, of heaven and the universe and inserts the family, which does not offer a lot of hope to singles and people without kids. But they're working hard to try to earn and get to God. Buddhists are working very hard. It may not seem like it because they're trying to meditate and detach themselves from everything physically, but they're working hard to squash the desires of greed and jealousy and lust and conflict by trying to completely detach themselves and have no feeling, by, not, by trying not to be attached to anyone or anything. They're working hard to try to eliminate those desires. Muslims are working hard. Tomorrow is the end of Ramadan. From April 2nd to May 2nd, they've been going all of the daylight hours without eating or drinking anything. It ends tomorrow. They pray to the east five times a day. They go to temple. They read the Quran. They're hoping to do all of this to do just enough in life to please a God that may or may not let them into heaven, depending on how he's feeling when they die. Atheists are even working hard. Which Atheist is a belief that there is no God. Sometimes atheists will say, I don't believe anything. That's not true. You believe there is no God. They're working hard to convince others that there's not God, and we are all wasting our time by trying to pursue God. They even have an annual convention. And so they're trying to say, look, life doesn't have a plan, so stop pursuing God. But really the message is, your plan is wrong, our plan is right, which is totally contradictory to what they say they believe if there is no God. So it's foolishness, and all of it is like trying to stand in your backyard on a trampoline and jump and land on the moon. There's no hope of getting to God through works and legalism. I thought Pastor Sean did an excellent job in his sermon on Romans 9, 6 through 13, where he said, if any part of our eternal security, getting into God's family, is dependent upon us, 
then we can undo it. That's a pretty insecure salvation. And that's not what Scripture teaches. Yes, we've got to live in wisdom. We've got to submit to each other in the Lord's sanctification. But we're not earning His favor. We are His daughters. We are His sons. We're already in His family. And He's, he's just increasing our love and our desire for Him through sanctification. It's not an earning our way in. So that's the first part of, of, of chapter 12. I want us to be really careful with the second part of chapter 12, especially in the West, because this has been abused a lot in the last 100 or 200 years. So the, for there's no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing riches on all, bestowing his riches on all and call on him. His riches. We believe God is the sovereign ruler over everything. He is the one who created everything we see. He created people. He created the earth. He created the universe. He created all of the galaxies. He created everything that we see and enjoy. So he has all wealth and all belongs to him. And some people make the leap here in the health and wealth gospel that with verses like this, if God is the center of the universe and he holds all wealth in his hands, he wants to bless you, bestow his riches on all who call on him. This is similar to verse 11. He does want to do that, but we must remember it's in, in, in the eternal unseen world where we will enjoy his riches forever. He's not saying that if you believe in God and do what he says, you'll be healthy and you'll be wealthy all of your life here on earth. And if you've been a believer for any period of time, you know, you know this is true. Because the Bible talks about, you know that's not true, that you're going to be healthy and wealthy and not have any problems. Because you've prayed for a loved one who's been sick, and they didn't get better. They either have a long-term illness or they die. Or you prayed for some job that you desperately wanted that went to somebody else. Or you prayed for a house and people keep outbidding you, or the prices keep going up, and you just can't afford to get a house anymore. There are hardships that happen in life, and it doesn't mean that God is just going to make all of that okay. He's concerned about using us for his glory, not us building a little mini kingdom here on earth. Paul, writing the letter, knew much hardship. This guy was beaten, he was arrested, he was stoned, he was shipwrecked, he was bitten by a deadly snake. He was often, he says, without sleep, without food. He experienced a lot of hardship, and the Lord used him to write more of the New Testament than anyone else. God is concerned about working on us for his glory, not making sure that we have every kind of lavish luxury here in life. He wants us to enjoy feasting and celebration. He wants us to enjoy worship. And we will do that in eternity with him, without the stain of sin. We're going to finally be able to do what we were created to do without any sin or any regret. And we're going to be able to enjoy him for eternity. And we're going to be able to enjoy each other for eternity without the stain of sin. There'll be no more having to walk back into a roommate and say, look, I'm tired, I'm irritable, and I'm sorry that I yelled at you for eating all the cereal. Okay? If you want to do those conversations anymore. Or you won't have to apologize as a parent for yelling at your kids uh, and telling them to get along and talk nicely to each other even though you're yelling at them and you're not demonstrating that. Or you won't have to be angry because something happened at work that you felt 
feel like was an injustice. We're going to be able to enjoy God for eternity, which would be the most joy. But we're going to be able to enjoy each other, too, without having to worry about greed or oversensitivity or uh, jealousy or anger, any of that stuff. And so those are his real riches, the unseen riches where we will feast with him in eternity. And then he goes on in verse 13, and he closes it down and reminds us, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So I want to issue a caution in the verse and then, a, and then an encouragement. So Paul is saying that salvation is open to all who believe in God. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But this is great news. He just said in verse 9, how do you call on the name of the Lord? Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. And you will be saved. So you confess and you believe. Anyone can be adopted into God's family who calls on his name because Christ has opened a path. Now, I want to be careful to say this does not mean all will be saved. It does not mean that all roads will end up leading to God regardless of how you get there. But more than that, I want to say this is good news. But it is often in our Western culture not viewed as good news. So saying salvation is open to all who confess Christ is very good news. But this is, I think, one of the craftiest things that Satan has ever done, is he's taken that message of salvation being open to all, being good news, and he's turned it and said, created in our culture a lot of people who believe that it's narrow-minded and oppressive to try to tell someone what to believe. Even if it's open to all, you shouldn't tell somebody what they have to believe about God. You shouldn't tell somebody that there's only one way to God, that you're trying to hold them back, or you're trying to oppress them. This is falling out of favor. In Paul's time, salvation being too open to all was a radical message because there were some who thought they were in God's inner circle, and there were others who would never be in God's inner circle and had no hope. In our day and time, it's a radical message because we want to decide who God is, how we serve him, and how we get to him. Which means ultimately we want to move God from being God, and we want to insert ourselves into being God. And it's everywhere. I was just doing a workout video on Friday. It wasn't Jane Fonda, but at my age, it could be. Who cares? So I was doing a workout video, and the guy at the end of the video was saying, uh, you know, if you're having a hard time, you need to take a break, take a break. If you can push through, push through. You do you. You do what you got to do is best for you. That's what we believe for everybody here working out. You got to do what's best for you. That's our message. And I thought, oh my goodness, what a bunch of hope. I don't know what's best for me most of the time, so I probably shouldn't be making the decisions. But that's what we want to believe in our culture today. We don't want anybody to come in and say, hey, you, you, you can't just say there's one message, which, in the irony of it all, is a message to tell me that I can't say there's one message. I've got to say your message, which is, your message is, write your own adventure, do whatever you want to believe. Believe there's no God, believe there is a God, create a God, you want to be, you know, whatever. Traditional religion, make up your own religion. So this is the, the craftiness of Satan to come in and say, that is, uh, that's a message that doesn't have any hope. When in fact, it's the only message that has hope. 
that we as weak, sinful people can call out to a God who is willing to take the wrath that we deserve and do all of the work of enduring sin and death and raising from the dead so that we might have salvation. So don't believe the message of our culture. We will be adopted into God's family if we believe and we call out to Jesus. And the last thing I want to encourage us with is that should be motivating. Because it goes on in 14 and 15, and I'm going to steal the thunder for next week, to talk about we should be sent. We should preach the gospel. So this message is open to all, and the Bible tells us there are some who will believe. In fact, the Bible talks about multitudes in heaven. There will be a lot of people who believe. So when we're tempted to uh, think that we don't have time for somebody, or we're tempted to think that person will never believe. They haven't believed in the past when I've shared. They're not going to believe now in the future. When we're tempted to believe those lies of the enemy, that it doesn't matter or it won't work, remember, it will work. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And the Bible talks about the multitudes in heaven. And it talks about the feasting. It talks about glorifying God. There will be lots of believers in heaven. And so we should be motivated to want to tell people not because we want to earn God's favor, but because it is the message that no matter who they are or where they've been or what trauma they've been through, salvation is open to them if they confess with their mouths and believe in their hearts that Jesus is Lord. The miracle of salvation is still a miracle, even though sometimes, especially if you've been a believer a long time, it can feel like second nature. It's not. We're still living in our, in our sinful nature, and God is refining us. So just as flying, we can easily be put out by a 30-minute or an hour delay when we can travel the country in six hours versus six months. Don't let the miracle of salvation, which is a much greater miracle, a much better message of hope, be lost on us. I pray it's not. It often is in my heart, but I've been very encouraged the last few weeks in preparing for this. And I pray that it continues to encourage us as we go out. So let me close in prayer, and then we're going to sing. Jesus, I thank you for your word. I thank you for these verses that even though they are familiar, we know, we know about salvation. We know that it's open to all. We know that you took our dead bodies and you brought them into your kingdom. You resurrected us. I pray, Lord, that that won't be lost on us. I pray that our hearts would feel a fresh and a new love for you. Pray, Jesus, that you will give us faith and boldness. As I have people in my life that I confess, I think will never believe. I pray that I won't believe that lie of the enemy. I pray, Jesus, that we will never be deceived to think that it's unloving to tell somebody to believe differently. I do pray, Lord, for us as a church. I pray as we desire to see fruit, but we confess, Lord, we cannot make the fruit. We don't have the ability to change our hearts one shred, much less anybody else's. But I pray, Jesus, that you will help us, help us to be full of faith, that you will change our hearts. You will finish the work that you began in us. And that you will bring into your kingdom all that you've appointed. So give us hope. Give us joy. Let our hearts be encouraged. In your name.